0: Hello, everybody. This is Steve Hargadon. And in the United States, it is May 14, 2009. In New Zealand, it's May 15th. We have a special guest tonight, Mark Treadwell. Uh, our session is starting late. We understand that you may have time issues, and you have to leave early. Please don't feel badly about that. We are recording the session. Please feel free to come and go as you please. If this is your first time at a and you think that you might want to ask Mark a question, go up to Tools, Audio, and run the Audio Setup Wizard. You can do that right now. Just check and make sure that your microphone will work. Um, We want to give great thanks to KnowledgeWorks for funding this interview series. They've been terrific partners. They've created a 2020 forecast that you can see, and we'll give you the link at the end of the show where you can Google uh, KnowledgeWorks 2020 forecast. If this is your first time in Illuminate, you'll notice at the top of your screen is a green check and a red X. If if you can find that, it's up in the top set of icons. If this is your first time in Illuminate, would you please click on the green check? You'll see the check shows next to my name. So the rest of us, let's clap for those first timers in Illuminate. You've come in and you've uh, figured it out. Mark would be Mark would be putting up a green check if he were on the telephone, but were on his computer. You've also got a chat area, which is down below the participant list. I actually like to move that chat around, and here's how I do that. I go up to view, layouts, and I select wide layout, and that helps me to see more of the chat. You can put a message in the chat. You can actually send a private message by clicking on that drop-down box next to the Send button. But do be aware that if you send a private message, the moderator still sees it. So that's me. So just don't say anything uh, nasty about Steve Hargadot in those messages. They don't show up in the recorded uh, version of the chat. Okay, so this is a map of the world. I'm going to give you all permissions to modify the map. Look to the left of the map, look for a little wand with a red dot at the end. And if you click on that wand, you can place yourself on the map. And we've got mostly U.S., we've got Hawaii, we've got what looks to be uh, northern Japan, we've got two in Australia, two in Hawaii, if I didn't identify that Asian link, would you let me know where you're from? Sapporo, Japan. Awesome. Yeah, Peggy loves that wide layout. I do, too. I, don't, I never use Illuminate without using that wide layout. It helps to follow the chat. Anyway, we're about 46 in the chat room. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Uh, Mark, I'd like to ask you, if you would, to introduce yourself, uh, tell us uh, the time and temperature where you are, uh, and maybe a little bit about your background.
1: Okay, that's fine. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for uh, hanging around while we uh, move through this process. Uh, we've been doing research. Uh, I have a research team, and we've just been doing research around the future of education over the last 15 years. And uh, in the last uh, three or four years, we've synthesised many of those uh, ideas. And uh, uh, following a paper we wrote in 1998, in 1998, we wrote the first of several papers uh, talking about what we describe as a paradigm shift in learning and the consequences of that paradigm shift in learning across the world and what that would mean for uh, global systems, uh, global social processes and uh, institutions, and how they would affect the world as such. And uh, The metaphor we use or the analogy we use is around the fact that the last paradigm shift we had uh, in the world really was just prior to the Renaissance period, and so that's the scale of the paradigm shift we're talking about. So that's what i want to talk about today, and why that is going to transform education and learning, and what we've actually done in New Zealand around that. So I live in New Zealand. I was born in uh, London. Uh, my parents were Irish. Uh, they immigrated to Australia when we were kids, and so I grew up in Adelaide in South Australia. South Australians are in South Australia. There you go. And uh, I moved here 30 years ago uh, to do a three-month job, and uh, just absolutely loved New Zealand, and stayed here, and now I'm married and two kids. So it's about uh, Maybe 16, 17 degrees here. Uh, it's gone cool just lately uh, here in New Zealand. This is, of course, heading into uh, fall okay, and autumn for those people who live in the different parts of the world. And uh, yeah, uh, I'll talk through a little bit now, as we go to you, Steve, regarding uh, that shift and uh, how we see that change in education and learning and also uh, the sort of moves that governments now around the world need to make in order to make the most of the efficiency and effectiveness gains that this paradigm shift provides or makes opportune to us. So is it okay to go with that, Steve? Yeah, that would be
0: great. Although I did want to ask you-, there, you
1: Steve?
0: Uh, um, Can you hear me? Yep. There's a slight lag, Mark, when you come on I my telephone, you? so I apologize. Now, I did want to ask you. You have two daughters, right? Okay. Yep. So, how has their education they are 16 been? And years. Sixteen and eighteen. Sixteen and eighteen. How has their education been impacted? How has their education um, been impacted by what, what, what you've been learning?
1: Um, well, my girls actually now present with me uh, on on several occasions now. And increasingly they are also talking from their perspective about some of the things that have changed for them. And why they wish they had got those been those changes available to them when they were much younger. Because they are in the twilight years of their compulsory education. So they are in their final years of high school. Uh, so for them, they are really missing out on many of the transformations that are now taking place in New Zealand education. Uh, which is sad, unfortunately. Um, uh, one of them is uh, heading off to be to train as a teacher next year, and uh, so we'll have to try and pick up the uh, universities and make sure they're on deck for that. But hopefully uh, they've benefited from just the discussions we've had with them and the discussions they've had at conferences with me and the presentations they've made at conferences. So has been very cool.
0: So, Mark, you're, the title of your recent book is, uh, or one of them is, Whatever, The Revolution of School V2O. And I think the whatever refers to yep. how students respond in, when asked questions, or just sort of a general generational response. Have your daughters ever said that to you?
1: Uh, no, I think they realise it'd be punishable with they're not quite death, but something close, like you wouldn't have the car. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, no, they haven't, they haven't done that to me yet. <laughs>
0: So Mark, there's also a dog on the cover of the book. What does that mean?
1: The dog really was the epitome of looking for something for the epitome of whatever. And the dog really, to me, was that epitome of that. It's not our dog, so uh, um, it really is just a photo. uh, But the dog's become symbolic of that whole sort of uh, feeling of, you know, whatever. You know, I'll do the bare minimum I have to do. If I've got to fetch a stick, yeah, okay. But then I'm going to lay down again. And what we see around the world really is this disengagement factor with learners. Uh, they are chilling out. They're doing the bare minimum uh, to get what they need to get through the system. Uh, so they're not even revolting against the system. They're just doing the bare minimum. So there's no aggravation. But most teachers find this even more aggravating than doing than actually them getting angry. Uh, and I think uh, that frustration and that disengagement is reaching epidemic proportions around the world. And no matter which country I speak in, uh, I see evidence of it wherever I go. And all teachers understand that concept of whatever pretty much straight away. Hence the title of the book because I want to get rid of that word.
0: I want to get rid of which word? Oh, the whatever. Of that being a response.
1: Yeah, as a response, I want kids to go, yeah, fantastic, let's get on with this, this sounds exciting, I'm fully engaged in this. Uh, That's the word, that's the sort of the approach or the sort of thing we're looking for. Um, uh, So uh, that's that's one of the things that we're we're sort of trying to do. But uh, one of the things we're trying to get first of all in place is a whole lot of technological stuff in the background and then Pedagogical sort of, andragogical sort of uh, processes for teachers to rethink through what they're doing in the classroom and what that means uh, for practice and also for curriculum. So there's a lot of implications of the work we've done, and uh, in New Zealand we've been working on many of those processes for the last eight to ten years. And we're well down that track. We've just released a new curriculum, uh, the total curriculum for our compulsory sector, that's K12. Uh, Is just 44 pages long, and uh, that provides a curriculum framework for teachers then to actually turn into a localized curriculum for their school. Schools have control in New Zealand over hiring and firing uh, of staff. They have full control of their school budgets. Most of them are in the millions of dollars uh, in terms of what money they get to spend on buildings or whatever they like. There's no very, very little government. Processes around what should be taught and how it should be taught. It's pretty much left up to the school and the school community. So schools in New Zealand have a huge amount of autonomy, which is very unusual. Uh, and with the new curriculum, they even have autonomy around the curriculum. We have a review process that goes through schools every three years to check to make sure they're reaching some some basic sort of standards around uh, some issues. But generally speaking, schools have a high degree of autonomy, and it's a very high trust model.
0: So, uh, Mark, I'm really curious to drill down on a couple of things. I'm going to let those who are in the session know that Mark can't see the screen. He's not actually logged on to Illuminate. So if you do have a question, please feel free to put it in the chat. If I miss it, I'm going to count on those of you who are more seasoned uh, in Illuminate to, to draw to my attention. And make sure that I that I see that it's up there. And you can even raise your hand if you just want to um, let me know there's something in the chat. Mark, so it sounds like what you're saying is that the that the problem is disengagement, but but that disengagement maybe is a reflection yeah. of a larger change, and that because of that change and because of yeah. the resulting disengagement, that there need to be there needs to be a rethinking of teaching and learning. Is that accurate?
1: That is correct. Yes, yeah. So just put, put briefly what we have seen uh, in the last uh, few years is a, we talk about this paradigm shift, and the paradigm shift really has been the shift from a knowledge-based centricity of learning. In other words, if you know stuff, you're a winner. So if you can remember stuff in the summative test, uh, you win, and you go on to the next level of learning, and so forth and so forth. Uh, through the university system and then on into whatever you might do from then on in. So knowing stuff was the the be all and end all. And so at uh, triple Pursuits nights, uh, teachers were very popular because they know lots of stuff. And uh, what we are sort of saying now is that really, uh, to a large degree, the paradigm shift, that first paradigm shift was made available through the development of the printed press. And so the printing press allowed people to um, essentially be able to move knowledge around much more efficiently and effectively and for a much lower cost. And in the process of doing that, it meant that knowledge uh, became much more transportable, available, etc. And what we're now seeing uh, is a second transformation on the same scale as the invention of the book. Uh, With the invention of the internet, we're now seeing a new paradigm opening up. Uh, and with the internet, for the same reasons, we've got the lowering of the cost of knowledge and also the availability and cost of collaboration around the world, just like we're doing now. Uh, and so this next paradigm shift ushers in the same potential as the first one does. So in the first paradigm shift, those people who brought on board the capacity to use the new tool, that to and understand how to read and write, they could actually make the most of that technology and move forward. And I often give the example of China who in the 12th century had a fleet of 330 ships, the longest one being 166 meters long. And given that in the 1800s most ocean-going boats were at a maximum of about 40 meters, that was a massive ship. Uh, but really in that process between the 12th and the 1400s, China's emperor locked down, they sunk the whole navy, he sunk the whole navy and uh, locked down the whole of China. Fearful of this knowledge that was now being able to be transported and pushed around very quickly, and if you take um, another example from uh, uh, Portugal, now from the de port- region of which now Portugal, the Portuguese did just the opposite. In Portugal, they went away and said, "Look, they they moved down to look at uh, Bombay, which was the central port there. Also, China was trading through Bombay at the same time too, and they sent a team of people down. their small team, two boats." Landed in uh, off the coast of Bombay, spent three or four years learning from the processes they used there, the technology, things like flying money, a whole raft of technologies, the Chinese technologies which had been brought down through that region as well, brought those back, and Portugal leveraged off the back of those technologies and the printing press to actually develop a whole new community and dominated that whole European landscape for some time. And of course Spain picked up the ideas of course uh, being very close and also England also being very close picked up those ideas and technologies and also dominated the, the, the frontiers. So countries and governments which leverage off these new technologies it can really fly with it. What we're seeing now is with the internet, the internet now is lowering the cost of knowledge dramatically but it's doing something very interesting. It, it's also providing us with a whole series of environments and technologies to facilitate learning to a much deeper degree. Uh, in almost every school in the world, if I go into the library, the library is arranged in order of there's a, a, a volcano section, a space section, an underwater world section, famous mathematicians, Aztecs, Romans, these thematic topics. And kids didn't actually have to understand those concepts underpinning those topics. They just had to remember some of the knowledge from it, because our testing systems tested the knowledge. To teach for understanding, you need to be able to interrogate rich knowledge resources. And that interrogation is driven by clever, rich, open, fertile high-order thinking questions from the teacher. It has only been through the advent of the internet that we can actually truly resource those clever, rich, open, fertile questions. And through the internet also, we can actually then work with people from around the world on these topics. And So the Internet is opening up a gateway to change the end point of learning, which traditionally right through the last paradigm was knowing stuff, to a new end point of understanding. And in that new end point of understanding what we start to realize is that in fact through the process of inquiry uh, what students can do is to work with knowledge, to manipulate it, uh, work with it, interrogate it, etc. And then actually present it in a different way, and in the process build that understanding and so we're looking at building that understanding that's that's our key now to the way forward in the 21st century that means huge shifts in thinking for for many schools and school systems so we're moving away from a, the knowledge is the answer and that we just want that knowledge stuff because we can look that up on Google if we have to. There's a baseline of knowledge you need to build the understanding. But at the moment we're moving from the knowledge base through to understanding rather than asking ourselves what concepts do kids in the 21st century actually need to understand and asking ourselves if those are the concepts we need to understand what knowledge underpins them. And so we're shifting from a thematic base to our curricula and a knowledge base to our curricula to a concept based curriculum and that's what we've just finished in the second uh, large text has just been completed it is to produce this global conceptual framework for learning
0: so Mark, I guess the question that I keep I'm very yeah. much uh, on board with most of what you're saying, but I guess the interesting question for me would be, do we sometimes overstate the case? meaning your description of education um, and i and i I won't read the quote I have here, but I think you've just you described it. and and the impact of the computer. Does that give the internet too much credit for the role? Meaning, when I graduated from college in 1983, the goal of my liberal arts education was very much what you just described, without real access to the internet.
1: Yeah, What the internet provides really is a way, for example, my daughter got sick a little while ago, quite sick. Now I was able to, we were able to that outcome because the outcome being presented or the, the potential sort of cure that was being presented to us was not one that you know we wanted to go ahead with. But because I had the capacity to go on, online and get the best people in the world to discuss this and come back to me with some, some better advice, I was able to solve a complex problem in a very short space of time with a really good outcome. And the outcome being presented at that point was not good. So what we're talking about now is it's not just the potential for that liberal arts approach and getting people to interrogate and think about what they're doing. Uh, because in fact that liberal arts education was largely available only to a small minority. What we have seen in the last 80 years is a complete transformation of the workplace. We've seen from, for example, in the United States, 80% of people worked in the primary sector just at the beginning of last century. So in the early 1900s, 80% of people worked in the primary sector. By the end of the 20th century, what we were seeing is that 80% of people were now working in the service sector. Now Richard Florida wrote a fantastic book called The Flight of the Creative Class. After his first book, which is called The Rise of the Creative Class, he quickly produced a second book called The Flight of the Creative Class. And what we are seeing now is the rise of the creative class because we are seeing some of our service industries moving offshore. Increasingly here in the United States and elsewhere, the service industries and the knowledge industries we may describe them as have moved offshore. And we are seeing the rise now of the creative class. Now creativity and innovation is seen by all our countries as a way in which we can generate and improve and increase our GDP. But that creativity relies on understanding. If you just know stuff, you can't actually be creative. You've got to actually take that knowledge and develop a deep understanding of it in order to be creative and innovative. And so the transformation that we're talking about, uh, although we had a liberal arts education for some years, especially back through the 60s, 70s and 80s, um, what we've seen in many countries is a reversion back to a knowledge base. And with people really pushing uh, the, the real big things of literacy and numeracy. Literacy and numeracy being absolutely everything, and literacy being only reading and writing. Okay. Literacy really, if you look at uh, in, a, in the service sector economy, the most important literacy in the service sector economy is oral language. And given that 80% of uh, people now work in the service sector, oral language dominate that uh, that language landscape, but it still doesn't. Reading and writing still dominates it. Now I would I would suggest too, and I can send some through some diagrams of this uh, for you, that in fact in the transformation from the oral world where oral learning, the oral stories are being passed down, oral histories passed down, oral ideas passed down, to the book paradigm, both those processes required on something we refer to as synthesis. Synthesis is the ability to take ideas and add new ideas and form a greater, bigger world picture or a world view. By shifting to the book paradigm, we opened up more opportunity for more knowledge, more understanding, and a greater world view. In the shift to the internet, in the this, in this second paradigm shift we're now seeing, what we're now able to do is to actually engage in an even richer environment with real people. Rather than waiting for a book to come out, we can speak to the very people that are doing whatever it is we want to know about. So you can go onto ePals.com and actually visit people around the world, and this is what schools here in New Zealand are doing, if there's a news item, rather than waiting for the newspaper to report on it, they are finding the closest classroom in EPALs, and there's 270,000 schools in EPALs, the closest classroom and going on Skype or whatever it might be to talk with those kids about their experiences, about what happened uh, in their environment, and having a much richer and also much less filtered view of what's going on. So in Thailand recently with the, uh, the dispute there, we had a group of kids who actually got in touch with the Thai school close by, and someone there could speak English. And in fact, a few people there could speak English, and they had that conversation to work out what actually is going on. And it turned out that many of those people were unaware that anything was going on because the big thing at the time was a water festival, and so that was the big news, not these disputes that we were seeing on the, the, our global networks, television networks. So it was interesting to get a different perspective on that. So I think it's more than just a small change. This is a major shift in how we build understanding and creativity in the 21st century.
0: So there's been a question in the chat. Um, Kathy asks, is there a name for this paradigm shift? You're saying it's the greatest shift. I think I read that you sort of called it the second renaissance. Is there another name that you're using for this shift?
1: Yeah, the, the, what we are seeing is the shift. In, prior to the first renaissance period, and this was a regional uh, paradigm shift because it was European centric at the time. Prior to that period of time, uh, prior to the renaissance that happening, there was a very tumultuous time as Europe got its headspace around what does this mean? Now you can learn in a different way using the book. And countries that leveraged that actually accelerated themselves from a very low status to a high status in a very short period of time in historical terms. And uh, decisions made in that space, in that tumultuous period of time, really dictate who will dominate the landscape when everything settles down. And after things settle down, that not just the technology, the book, but a whole lot of other social uh, events as well, such as the Reformation, uh, such as the landowners and the traders becoming as wealthy now as the historical aristocrats, etc. Uh, workers demanding uh, payment for their work, uh, people being paid to think, so the Michelangelos, or the Da Vincis of the world, were being paid to think about a whole raft of things. Once we had our first researchers, all those things merged together to form a Renaissance period, a time of great change. And uh, whenever there is a paradigm shift of this type, we go through a period, a tumultuous period, followed by a Renaissance period. And so, what we're predicting uh, in the in the texts and and the writings we've done. We are predicting a second Renaissance period which was loosely described but we are looking for a new name as Nouvelle Compréhension, the new understanding. So Nouvelle Compréhension is this new Renaissance period which will emerge out of this. But only to countries who make the infrastructural changes to make the internet available. Just like the printing presses were made available to the general public, uh, but not until the 1800s in some contexts. But if we can make that available, those countries who make that shift, And realize, in fact, learning via the internet is a much different process because when you learn on the internet, the synthesis process is not just about text; it's much richer. We're now not dependent only on text to learn. Uh, For example, today we're all listening to this broadcast. Okay. If you were to read the book, it's 350 pages. Now I can synthesize that and compress it down into a 45-minute presentation, uh, very briefly, and you get the idea. So that actually means you're learning faster. If you go onto a web page for the New York Times, you will learn faster because in fact you can actually synthesise the video uh, that's there for you to view, the audio that's there for you to view, uh, you can uh, look at the images that are there for you to use, you can actually communicate directly with some of the people involved as well. And so what we're now starting to see is, a, is this shift in how we learn not just what we learn, but how we actually learn. And the, the, the third, I'll stop there for a minute until people can ask some questions maybe, then I'll go to the next phase.
0: Well, so um, those of you who have come in, like Jim, Klein, and asked longer questions, unfortunately, Mark's not able to see the chat. He's on the telephone, but we're going to try and track those and get to them. I'd like to try and make a connection, Mark, and tell me if you think this is accurate. I'm looking at the list of 47 people in the chat. and. A good number of them are individuals where I feel that their association with Web 2.0 has dramatically altered their uh, personal learning and their career paths. Uh, and I know I've experienced that as well, that, that there has been this sort of dramatic shift to transition or transformation that's taken place uh, with me because of these technologies. Do you think it's fair? Do you make a comparison between the, those personal shifts and the sort of this larger sense that you have of a new renaissance?
1: Yeah. Let's look at some of the things that have happened recently. If you look at Barack Obama's win in the election last year, he transformed his approach in terms of politics, and politics now is being transformed via these Web2 tools. It's going from a top-down process to a collaborative process. If you look at even going to the doctor today, when I turn up at the doctor, the doctor says to me, Mark, what is wrong with you? Because he knows I will have gone and researched what I think is wrong with me. And it is no longer him telling me what is wrong with me. It is a collaborative deal. If you look at churches, churches are divided themselves into two paradigms. The old paradigm of the top-down model, and those churches are dying. They really are. Unfortunately, they are dying. If you look at the churches that are booming, they are all collaborative. And they're all using these Web2 tools, they've got a rock band up the front and the relevancy is clear to the people who are attending. They must be because there's tens of thousands of these people attending these new churches. Every single system that we see now is making a choice between a top-down model which is dying and a collaborative model which is booming. Businesses now are collaborating. Collaboration now is the number one focus of most businesses, getting the best possible outcome from the workers in the field. Not telling them what to do, but asking them for their opinion, asking them to contribute to the overall functionality of that business. And so Web2 tools are deeply embedded in this collaborative process. We require them to do that process. And so it's not just the stuff on the internet. Okay, The stuff there is important, but really it's also the ability to then have discourse around that stuff to build the understanding using experts like we're doing today.
0: So I want I want to move on so that we can get to the Q&A. Uh, I want to make a connection here. So you, you basically described this change and um, so the next step then would be, you know, what do we do with schools? And I'm going to quote from your book, the key goal for schools therefore is to expose young people to as many different opportunities as is possible. So they can discover for themselves what they're inherently good at, what they would do, even if they were told, if they were told not to do it, what they are passionate about. So, you've described what's happening in yep. New Zealand. I think a lot of us in the United States would say, okay. we're not, we're not sure this can come in through the front door. I interviewed uh, Michael Horn from Disrupting Class, and the basic thesis is this kind of disruptive transformation won't happen easily or, or maybe almost can't happen from the top-down current model. How do you respond to that?
1: I would tend to agree. To, uh, and That's why I think in New Zealand, with the, the fact that each of our schools are autonomous and there's a high-trust model, they can bring in through the front door. But one of the other things we have realized in this curriculum is this is the first we call competency-based curriculum. Now, in the uh, late 90s, early 2000, two big reports came out in Europe. One was from the OECD, uh, called the, uh, uh, the CECO Report, and one was from the European Commission, called the Eridice Report. Both these reports investigated what capacities does anyone require in order to become a learner. And they came up with these seven competencies, which in New Zealand we've distilled down to five competencies, And the five competencies are managing self, thinking, participating, communicating and collaborating. Unless you've got those five competencies, you can't really engage in the learning process. And this is where we're seeing the problem with the uh, children in in classrooms at the moment just disengaging because they do not have the skill sets for managing self, thinking, participating, communicating, collaborating. Uh, and we need to actually teach those skill sets in order to actually get them engaged. in other words, it's not just about math, English, and science. it's now about saying we've got to teach kids to manage not just their, you know bring a pen and bring a book but manage their futures, manage their learning, manage their emotions in terms of thinking we've got to ask ourselves, how does the brain actually work because our model we have at the moment is fundamentally flawed, it really is. There's no such thing as right and left brain thinking. You can't see pictures in your head. Now, there's a whole bunch of uh, stuff out there which is what people take as common knowledge but in fact is very, very poorly based on sort of anecdotal evidence and just local gossip that's permeated through the education sector. So we have to have a much better understanding of how the brain works and that's been our last four years of work has been around how the brain works and I've just been stunned actually now by you know, realizing, for example, Einstein has the lowest ratio of neurons of any human being we have on record. Okay? So that fundamentally tells me we've got an issue here. And so the new book I'm just working on at the moment, the fourth in the series, is called Whatever, Were We Thinking? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we unpack these new models of how we think the brain now works. And it's a totally different ball game altogether. And it moves away from that static model of the brain as this when you're born and that's just it, that's your lot. And it moves to a much more dynamic model. And uh, what we're now starting to see is we can understand we can understand things like autism, Uh, we can understand where savant behaviour comes from and why that happens. We can understand some of the disengagement we now see in the classroom using this new model. And I'll present that at the International Thinking Conference in Kuala Lumpur in a month's time. Uh, the results from that work. So we're now going to use that whole idea of what thinking actually is, teaching people to think. Because you can't just say to kids, "Come on, think," because what are they supposed to do? I mean, they put their hand above their eyebrow and they sort of put their hand on their hip, the other hand on their hip, and that's what you do when you think. But what are you supposed to do? You know, when someone says use your imagination, what actually do you want them to do? Like, how do you use your imagination? We need to be much more explicit around these things because, in fact, if we want people to learn and interrogate, they must have those competencies in place prior to the learning process. So in the second text, we outline what those concepts are that underpin those competencies and map them across the year levels.
0: So I want to make sure that uh, I send you the chat log so you can see the great chat that's going on. Uh, And I'm I'm going to open up in a minute to to questions because I think we've got a... A group here that has a lot of good questions, you'd help me to see something and i'm and I'm curious to see if the if the group would agree with this uh, i've i've been uh, I've had a hard time understanding the role of technology as it relates to education, but what I think I've heard is that the role of technology in our culture as a whole is so dramatically changing our culture that it's going to require new things of our educational system. Which is, a, which is a better understanding for me of the driving force of technology. Not that it's, not the technology itself is changing educational practice, but its cultural impact is requiring that we focus on ways of teaching that better suit and prepare our students for that world. Uh, chat group, do you think yeah. that's appropriate, and Mark, how do you respond to that?
1: I would say that is very appropriate. The technology itself should be transparent. It is not about the technology. It is not about boxes on desk. The more transparent the technology can be, the better. To me the iPhone is the the, point at which we are at the moment. It is a device that allows me to contact anyone, anywhere, anytime. It allows me to see stuff in all sorts of media formats. It allows me to store information and pass information on easily and effectively and efficiently. And it does not come with a manual. It's relatively cheap and it provides me that gateway. So to me it's the ultimate sort of transparent garage. It just slips into my pocket and when I need it I can access it. It runs on a battery and the battery lasts for most of the day. So we're shifting from this sort of notion that the technology needs to be big and ugly and grey and boring to actually the technology is quite sexy, transparent and effective and efficient and increasingly more cost effective. And so it's actually, as you mentioned, it's that cultural shift of what we believe is worth teaching and learning. In other words, like children entering in today, we've got no idea what they're going to need to know in 20 years' time, or five years' time for that matter. But we have to create them for that. We have to actually give them the skill set to be able to become lifelong learners. And if we simply have a top-down model teaching stuff at kids, they are never going to leave school with the capacity to continue the learning process. And with the rate at which knowledge is transforming, we all have to become now lifelong learners. So in New Zealand our central mission in in our curriculum is we have to be confident. That confidence gives the capacity to be connected. The confidence and connectivity gives us the capacity to be actively engaged. And those three things give us the capacity to become lifelong learners. And that is our focus. And so the competencies provide the bedrock of one of the pillars to that process. Uh, And in the other pillar that we now require, and this is a very interesting one, and it's come into lots of debate here, but it now is very well accepted, is the fact that if we then give people the capacity to be creative, uh, we can be creative for good or for ill. And uh, So in order to actually give our kids the capacity to be creative, we also have to provide them with a baseline of principles and character formation processes as well. In other words, the two pillars that hold up this thing now are the competencies and the character and principle formation. In the center is that capacity, and I'll send you this diagram and post it on the site somewhere. Uh, In the center of the diagram is this whole idea of building knowledge, into understanding through clever questioning and inquiry learning, and then applying the imagination to that understanding to be creative and innovative. And that requires a rich information and collaborative Web2 style environment to do that.
0: Okay, so I'm gonna we are for those of you who've come in late, we are running about a half an hour behind. Uh, Mark was gracious enough to call in on a phone line to get past some of the computer hurdles he was having. Um, if you need to leave, please don't feel badly about this. The session is being taped, um, recorded, and we, we will publish that um, later tonight so you have access to it. Um, why don't we shift gears uh, toward the Q&A? And if you've posted a good question, I apologize. This chat's been going about so fast that I haven't been able to, to grab them all. But I think there were some questions around assessment Uh, And uh, certainly if you have a question you want to ask using the microphone, you can raise your hand by clicking on the hand icon with the green up arrow, or you can put your question in the chat. Okay, so T. Gilly says, give us an example of applying the rich integration of knowledge and creativity. an, An
1: example in terms of what would happen in a school?
0: I think that must be the case.
1: Okay. In in the school environment, uh, at the moment, we are particularly focusing on the knowledge and the assessment, and you mentioned the issue of assessment, has been around what did the child remember in in that test. What we're shifting to now is giving kids bigger questions, questions that ask them uh, to uh, compare, contrast, investigate, interrogate, etc., and we're asking them to go away and work in teams to come back with possible solutions to that using an inquiry methodology. What the inquiry methodology does is allow the kids the time and space to build understanding through that interrogation and their own investigation of knowledge bases and collaborative environments around the world. What we're now seeing then is if you build understanding, the assessment system fundamentally shifts. First of all you do need summative testing because there is a body of knowledge that underpins that understanding and you do need to build that body of knowledge and have that in order to build the understanding. So we still require summative testing. But also we need diagnostic testing and formative testing because we need to be able to actually guide the child in terms of where they are at and what they need to do to get to where they need to be. So we have built in New Zealand something called ASTL, the assessment for teaching and learning process and uh, and in that assessment and teaching and learning process, uh, what we're trying to produce there is the process of um, being able to the child to go and actually test themselves to see where they're up to, but also formatively giving them a guide to where they might go to next. The fourth element in the assessment schedule is something that we've been building up at a software company as well in my spare time and one of the uh, things that we've been building within that uh, business is the reflective online portfolios. So kids can now go online, and teachers have set up. And my girls have been doing this now for a couple of years, uh, and they reflect on their own competencies. In other words, we can't give a child a B for thinking, or you know, 73% for participating and contributing. It just doesn't make any sense. So what we have to do is get the kids to reflect on that themselves. And what has happened in that process is they've actually started to take ownership of that learning process. And Danielle gave a very, my oldest daughter gave a very good presentation at the principals' conference just recently, and she basically implored them, saying, "Look, you know, if I had only known this five or six years ago, it would have made a huge difference to my learning processes. I now understand how I learn, and because of that, I know how to learn better." And so she's sort of you know, imploring them to actually get on with this and get it going. And this is a central tenet of the New Zealand curriculum. So how it looks in the classroom is quite different to what we've had in the past. A, we need access in the classroom to these rich environments. Not everybody necessarily having a laptop because laptops are very bulky, heavy, expensive, etc. But there needs to be technology in there so they can access these gateways and also access at home. And the portability of access obviously, is another issue there as well. In New Zealand we've also just passed legislation through our parliament and we're about to spend a number of billions of dollars to make sure that every home in New Zealand has access to fibre. So we'll have gigabit connections to every school in New Zealand within three years. That's, our, that's the only money we've spent on this in trying to sort of get over this recession we're now in. But the recession itself is just uh, just part of that tumultuous period as we as we re-engineer our thinking around how we move money around. And it's the movement of money via the internet that caused the problem we're in at the moment, by one shape or another. So it is changing, it is changing significantly. And the opportunities now for what we can do with the teaching and learning environment are just massive. And there's never been a better time to really be an educator.
0: So, Mark, I don't know if you can see, are you seeing the questions I'm putting into Skype from the chat?
1: Okay, I'll just read them so then I'll answer them. Now, how do you see this moving rapidly into the shift when we are burdened with the administration and has no idea of its importance? Um, You have to be strategic. Uh, About 12 or 13 years ago, uh, five of us met uh, who were fairly influential here in New Zealand education, and none of us worked in our department of education. We are all external to that. and We met and decided to start lobbying 10 key people in the department. And For three years that went nowhere. But suddenly five of those 10 people got together one afternoon and they started talking about this paradigm shift and suddenly went and made a whole lot of key decisions to actually transform the environment so things like uh, learning management systems became the thing that schools had to do interoperability of systems in schools became very important. the new curriculum got instigated uh, new policy practices and profile status came out as well. So what happened was lobbying okay uh, we, people used to say I used to say you know one day we'll get a good minister or head of education in our country okay and the truth is that is probably never going to happen. sadly it's probably never going to happen. Uh, but we can influence that process. So we decided we would start influencing that process and influencing the minister and all the key people who were making strategic decisions around education. And that turned out to be a very very strategic decision. And it made a huge difference to this country, that's for sure. There's another one here from Kathy. Have Renaissance the Renaissance was a transition from the dark ages into explosion of the arts. Is Mark making this type of connection with the Renaissance? Has it happened already or is it coming? Yes, I am making this connection actually Cathy. I'm saying that in fact what is happening now with creativity, creativity is now the central capacity building tool we need for our countries. And if you graph uh, the number of people in the creative industry, and the creative industry is across not just the arts, it's not just a bunch of singing, dancing Irishmen, but it's right across the sciences, the technologies, every single aspect. If you graph the creatives, growth, and this is what Richard Florida has done in his works, uh, against GDP, you'll see it's a straight line. In other words, the more countries have invested into the creative elements of their economy, the greater their GDP has become. So I'm saying, yes, we're looking for an explosion. Has it come? No, because we're in the tumultuous period, just leading into this curve, this sigmoid curve, this second paradigm. And so what we're looking for now is education systems that value creativity, because in the past we've done just the opposite. Uh, schools have actually limited the creativity and wanted everyone to be the same. And now we're saying no, that's not the case. And in New Zealand we're really pushing that big time here. So has it happened? It is about to happen. It's, it, we, we see the genesis of it here in New Zealand already. And we're seeing schools now rethinking uh, about what subjects they should do. The only subjects my children had to do at school was drama. And it was a fantastic choice. The drama to me you surf science, math and English by a country mile. It was much more important in terms of my girls' growth and development from my perspective. Uh, Jim Klein, both teachers and students need to take back ownership of their own learning. Great point. I- indeed. Uh, the only way we're going to get teachers on board with this is when teachers become lifelong learners to begin with. That's the model we need. Then they can start teaching students how to be lifelong learners as well. That is absolutely critical. Uh, Jim, again, with the rise of lightweight devices that make computing as cheap, reliable, and long-lasting as cell phones, what sort of renaissance might that create? The renaissance will just mean that the connectivity we will have will just be uh, fantastic. Uh, it won't be expensive, uh, and it's the cost of connectivity now and collaboration is dropping dramatically. And we're constantly forming groups of people around the world to discuss various issues, and it can happen in a moment. And so that's very, very important in terms of developing that capacity building. Uh, uh, yeah, capability. Melissa, local government should require school board members to grow professionally by participating in some of the online, these online sessions. Yep, absolutely agree. You have to start and get people thinking around what really matters in terms of education. Uh, at the moment, the simplistic testing, no child left behind, or as we call it in New Zealand, every child left behind equally, um, is really not a solution to anything uh Because, in fact, in our workplaces and our social places it 's the uh, literacy in terms of the oral language, the visual language, the multimeter, and writing and reading those two things that all those uh combine to form the baseline of actually working and living and growing and being creative in our societies uh, okay, thanks explain. okay thanks kathy um, yes, through standardized tests indeed um Yeah, it'd be easy for school board members to get hold of the archive session and have a conversation with them. Absolutely. I I do a certain amount of traveling, but I can't be everywhere every time. And so one of the things is, is putting these resources together. So what is happening here uh, has been fantastic. And Steve's work in terms of putting this online, I'm just going, it's fantastic. I'm not looking to capitalize on this, you know, in terms of store it and hide it and sell it to everybody. Uh, Really, we want to get it out there so that everybody understands the process. And in New Zealand we are just beginning that. You know, We have a new curriculum which is uh, being implemented at the moment, uh, that resonates around this whole process. We have built a whole lot of interoperability standards into the online environments we are now using. We have now thrown out Microsoft Office uh, out the door so we have no longer got that hanging over our heads. That is not the big deal anymore. It is about using these online tools uh, in online environments to communicate and provide parents with good uh, data about their students. Uh, at DataView, the company, uh, software company, uh, we've just created something called Smart Ask, which you have to say very carefully. And Smart Ask is a bit of software that allows parents access in a dynamic way, 24-7, to their child's reflections, their tests that they're doing at school, and the tests that they're selecting to do themselves. Uh, and it's a much more dynamic uh, assessment environment because it deals with not just the summative, but also the formative, diagnostic and the reflective. And to me, the, what my children write about their subjects and about their competencies is just hugely insightful and wonderful to read and it gets them to take control of their own learning. Yes, every child matters. That's a much better... Bit. <laughs> yes, every child matters. Yes, the British model. Very good. Thank you, Peggy. Um, okay. uh, is the Renaissance happening because of the digital native digital immigrant phenomena? Can I ask people to not promote this digital immigrant, digital native phenomena? I have had this argument with Mark Prinsky at several conferences now and it is just a non-issue. It is a non-issue because what we are now seeing uh, around the world is that the children are nowhere near as digitally literate as we think. In a recent survey of 4,500 secondary schools uh, students uh, we discovered that 17 actually knew how to take their cell phone take a video and upload it to YouTube. But 98% of the students knew someone who could do that. Okay? So the capacity, the actual technological capacity of the students is fairly poor. They have jumped over the chasm and are sitting in this new paradigm, but they are not progressing up this paradigm or really making use of its effectiveness and efficiency gains because what they haven't done yet is actually learnt how to learn with that technology. Teachers are looking across that paradigm because they were the masters of the previous paradigm. Their status was embedded in the first paradigm shift. So they're looking across the paradigm and they're seeing these group of kids staring back at them smiling with all this technology and they're overwhelmed by this and they're thinking, goodness me, I can't possibly do this as an educator because I don't know this technology stuff. My argument is, and it's a moral ethic, and moral and ethical determinants is that we have to have teachers jump this paradigm, jump the chasm that separates these two paradigms to actually teach the children how to learn with this technology. So we as educators have the capacity and know how to learn. Students have some technological capacity but it's pretty limited. Most don't know what Bluetooth is on their phone and most struggle to do the sorts of things we're doing right now. But we need to show them how to do that, how to use this technology for building collaborative environments and building knowledge and interrogating that knowledge to build understanding and using that understanding to be creative and innovative. That's a long, long question there. Uh, yet right the play of technology, not learn with it. Okay, there's no such thing as a digital native. No, there isn't. The reality is that kids are not more familiar with technology as a result of proximity to it. They possess a complete lack of fear, a willingness to try, fail and try again, to innovate, explore and discover. I agree fully, fully, Jim. But the digital native, their digital capacity from a technological perspective is much lower than we think. Much lower uh, than we we imagine. And I've been surprised by just how little these kids actually know about the technology they actually do possess already.
0: Mark, can I, can I ask a question? Uh, we just
1: took a survey school. Oh. No. Yes.
0: So th- this raises a point for me which is fairly intriguing. Uh, because my own children have uh, have different capacities or interest in the knowledge that's available from the internet, but clearly they're much it's much easier for them to become uh, or much easier for them to drill down and get information from the internet um, and I find that, um, that two of them do it quite extensively so uh, I think to some degree just having access to the technology while they may not be uh, better capable of it, they actually they do use it. But I'm wondering about, you know, in terms of population, we talk about creating an environment in which every student can have the opportunity to to learn what engages them and to work. Uh, Is it realistic? Is that actually a realistic notion, knowing that people are very different? And there may be a group of students for whom this doesn't engage them, and they're not really actually interested in being engaged. The person who's going to become the park ranger. I
1: I would say that that that's... Yeah, look, the part range will need the technology too, unfortunately. <laughs> but what we're saying here too is that in the past uh, we've only had a few people know what was going on and had the capacity to understand how to learn. It was a very, very small sliver and they told everybody else what to do. What we now have is the capacity to teach far more people, not necessarily everybody. But far more people, possibly 60-70% of people who need this new capacity because in fact collaboration is a key part to their job and their inclusion in society. Uh, and I would argue it is probably even higher than 70%. But I am certainly not proposing and for a moment that it will be 100%. But at the moment we have got the, the balance around the wrong way. 5% of people are telling everybody else what to do because they were bright enough from a cognitive perspective to pick up the nuance, the modeling that they saw, and turn that into an understanding of how to learn. And they learnt that by trial and error and you know, the most complicated process possible. But they learnt it because they're bright enough. But that was only 5%. We now need 75% of people to understand how to learn in order to be collaborative and actually work in their environment and actually have fulfilling creative jobs I mean there was a time when we all used to do hobbies because we'd drive home from a depressing, mind-numbing job which didn't engage us in any way, shape or form, and we'd do hobbies to sort of stimulate that human desire for creativity. Now we arrive home from work and we watch a screen because we're completely over doing <laughs> anything creative because we've been creating stuff all day and it's trained us mentally and we've hardly got the energy to actually you know, interact with our own children. And so it's actually getting that balance between these two things. More questions coming in. Uh, we took a survey. I uh, okay. Yeah, the technology is more than just a social tool. Kids use it as a social tool, and they're doing their Bebo and their MySpace thing, and they're downloading music, but they're not actually using it to learn effectively. They still are not familiar with how to interrogate, manipulate, and work with information to build understanding. Because what they need to do is the same thing that we need to do as educators. And that is learn to ask ourselves clever, rich, open, fertile questions, which push us into that whole sort of mystique and intrigue about the world we live in. And so one of our competencies uh, in the new curriculum, one of the dispositions we're looking at in our new curriculum, is this wonderment and awe. Wonderment and awe actually drives, you know, how should we do this? Okay. And this is uh, another question here from uh, Mary Arnold. Are there many people who do not have technology at all? And the answer is yes, there is. Uh, There there is uh, some people, but increasingly even our lower decile or or lower achieving areas of New Zealand, uh, the technology is creeping into the household in terms of internet because in fact you need internet now to play your online games. So the very technology that is used for gaming, it's like a a wooden horse, you know, a proverbial wooden horse that's wheeled in and sitting inside of that device, whether it be a PlayStation, whatever it might be, is a learning tool. A fantastically powerful learning tool. And if we give the right questions and engage the young people, they will also be intrigued by this learning tool as much as they are the games that they're playing on that same machine not surprising they work in environments where there are controls in place that don't encourage the fundamental knowledge of the technologies. Knowledge of the technologies, the technology should be easy enough to use without a manual. If the, my guideline is that if you need to teach the program, then the program is fundamentally flawed. Most of the programs the kids are picking up and running with now, like MySpace and, and Bebo and downloading stuff and music and iTunes, etc., don't come with a manual. They're intuitive and you can work it out pretty quickly. And you can work it out even better and far more faster in a collaborative environment where kids get together and talk to each other. So the technology we have to use must be intuitive. and what I don't want to see is technology lessons in school. Really we introduce them to the technology and they should be able to actually work it out how to use it pretty much intuitively. the lessons that are required to teach them how to use that technology to learn much more efficiently and effectively because that's what this internet paradigm Gives to us is a way of teaching more effectively and more efficiently. I'll pause for a minute.
0: So, Mark, uh, I think we'll take one or two more questions and we'll kind of wrap things up. I'm going to put a link in the chat for those who were there to the survey for tonight's show. We do appreciate if you fill it out. I'll also pull it up as a web tour for those of you who are who are uh, on the on the uh, in the illuminate session. Mark, so part of what I've heard you say is that this is about a, a huge historic change that it needs to and and we need to allow it to drive a change in the way that teaching and learning take place. But this is not about bringing technology into schools to create that change. It's about changing our principles of teaching and learning and then using appropriate technologies. Have I summarized that accurately?
1: Yes, you have. The, The teaching and learning drives what technologies you will need. Bringing technology per se into the school won't solve anything because we'll just use the technology to do the same thing we've always done. So it is a fundamental sociological shift around how we view learning and how we see learning as being important in the lives of everyone in our community. So what we've talked about today is not just for the compulsory education sector. The same all applies to every single sector, the tertiary sector, our universities and polytechs and the like around the world. But also our workplace sectors, because in fact we can't keep sending off people to very expensive, you know, week-long learning sessions somewhere in Phoenix, uh, and then bringing that knowledge back and having to send the next worker to the next worker. What we have to be able to do is leverage the sort of technologies we're using today, even at a very simplistic level, need this with the telephone, to actually build learning communities. And because every business now, if it does not learning, is not changing. If it's not changing, it's not facing up to the changing world we're living in on a day-to-day basis. And so we have to give them uh, young people the capacity to become these lifelong learners using these tools. But the tools must be transparent.
0: So Mark, what advice would you give an educator who's in a system that doesn't seem to be recognizing that uh, and, and if the temptation is to bring in the tools because that just is doing something, is there a better Course of action for an educator in in that circumstance.
1: There are two tiers of action that every educator has to take. One is that we're fantastic as educators at subverting the system to our own ends. Uh, Once you start to get a grasp of, of what the potential is. Then we can subvert the 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 environment to do the things we need to do and still actually get through the test. I'd argue that if you teach kids to understand that they'll do that test, even though it's a low-level summative testing system, they'll do it even better still because they're engaged and they want to be there. And so it's the engagement factor we've got to leverage off here. So I don't think anyone is going to actually lose out anywhere. By actually subverting the system a bit, so the subverting the system is the one one tier. The second tier is that you have to be strategic. You have to get hold of your district superintendents and these people, and send them books to read. You know, this is what we did here in New Zealand. I sent people uh, books. My three people I had to look after in, in our departments of education, you know, I sent them books to read. I took them out to breakfast. I, I took them to conferences that I thought was worthwhile. You actually have to invest in these people and to develop their learning capacity because many of these people sit outside the Web 2 world. And you've got to bring them into the Web 2 world slowly but surely giving them judicious sort of encouragement and technologies that work. And so, by giving them a technology that works, giving them an iPod to play around with, uh, I have never seen anyone not enjoy that device. You know, my mother's got one; she loves it. Okay, and she's uh, in her late 70s now. Thinks it's the best thing going. You know, she can listen to music, she can download stuff, browse the web, make phone calls. It's a great device. So, there's those two tiers. Uh, there's the In the United States, there's a a local superintendent level, there's a state level, and then there's actually, of course, a congressional, you know, national level you've got as well. You've got to work with multiple tiers, makes it more difficult, um, but that's life. In New Zealand, we're a small country. Um, I see our Prime Minister quite regularly at airports and can chat with him. Uh, We can ring people up. Uh, That's more problematic as the system gets more uh, bureaucratic. Uh, but that doesn't mean it cannot be done.
0: Mark, did you see the question I have asked you and that came from LD? What are the top three books that people should recommend their administrative leaders read?
1: All right. You can go on to one of our websites, The Emergent uh, 21st Century Teacher, and that's www.i-learnt.com and on the front page you'll see there's a professional learning book list now, if you click on that button, uh, you'll see that the first book in the list is actually my book because it's my website, so I can do this. Uh, but underneath there, you see there's 19 other books that we encourage people to pick up, and uh, some of them, you know, fantastic. Uh, Jacqueline Green and Brooks in Search of Under the Case in Search of Understanding the Case for Constructive Classrooms. Howard Gardner Five Minds for the Future, a fantastic text. Uh, then you've got things like Jeff Hawkins and Sandra Blakeslee, once again from the United States, on intelligence. You know they were the first neuroscience sort of group. Uh, Jeff, of course, developed the uh, uh, Palm Pilot and a whole bunch of other technologies. But his his interest in how he developed those tools was through his interest in neuroscience. Uh, Dennis Litke, the big picture education is everyone's business. Michael Fullen, breakthrough. You know there's a whole raft of books catching the knowledge wave. Jane Gilbert, economics even you know from Don Patoscot. It makes us look at these things differently. Uh, and so there's a range of about 20 books we recommend in that list there, which you can pick up and have a look at.
0: Okay. Uh, Mark, uh, you've been a trooper tonight or this morning for you. Uh, you've powered through a difficult computer circumstance. You've come on by a phone. I put the links to the reading list and to the website on the in the chat and also on the webpage uh, are good links for you. I want to thank KnowledgeWorks and uh, Illuminate. For providing uh, support for these shows. Uh, coming up, Susan, on this Tuesday, a special show. Susan Patrick from iNACOL, North American Council on Online Learning, and Dr. Thomas Cook from the World Health Organization are going to talk about education continuity and online learning as it relates to pandemics and other circumstances in which uh, learning needs to continue. Uh, Gary Putland coming up from Australia. Uh, Michael Wesch, Chris Deedy, John C. D. Brown, and David Thornburg and also a virtual school series coming up with Chris Walsh where we're going to talk to people who are doing virtual schooling. Um, Mark, any final words before we clap for you and let you know how much we appreciate you?
1: Look, I think this is the most exciting time ever to be an educator. I mean, the last time we had change on this scale uh, was 500 years ago, and it was limited to a region uh, called Europe. Today it's a global macro paradigm shift, and uh, the impact is going to be huge. The decisions your countries and governments make in the next three or four years will define your future as a country. And uh, in New Zealand, we've certainly made some very, very good decisions uh, around that in, in the last uh, two or three years, and going back 10 years for some of the research work that's all been done back then. And uh, I'm confident that, you know, as far as New Zealand is concerned, we are the Portugal of the 21st century. What we do not want to be is the China in the 21st century. Now, I'm going back to the previous discussion about the sinking the boats and hiding behind a closed wall. Uh, But I just can see the United States, uh, the increasing paranoia around uh, simple testing and that being a guideline to good learning is a very, very scary prospect. And Australia is sinking into that same mire. At the moment, Britain did the same thing. Britain was on a very good course for quite some time and three years ago lost the plot. And went back to the basics, and I sort of make the point to people that no one wants to go back to basics. You know, everyone wants actually to look forward to the future. No one wants to go backwards, uh, but we're going backwards to find solutions for the 21st century, and we can't. We must look forward to solutions of the 21st century, and I'd encourage you all out there uh, to um, propel this change, uh, to talk about it, encourage it and use the resources we've got online at the number of websites, et etc, to uh, build capacity in your own local communities. I wish you all the best. Thank you,
0: Mark. Okay, Let's we're
1: clapping. We're clapping for you. Uh, yeah.
0: Hey, Mark, what's your Twitter uh, account? Because apparently people have been signing up for your Twitter all during the session.
1: <laughs> Look, I get so much mail. I just cannot deal with Twitter as well. I went on Twitter and I just got overwhelmed with it, and I couldn't cope. So,
0: so that explains so why
1: my they were- <laughs> my mail address. I- yeah, exactly. My mail address is mark at and I do answer mail. It's the one thing I do keep on top. We've got some systems here. Some I talk to my computer here and I can actually answer lots and lots of mail in a very short space of time. Uh, I just found with my travelling and the research and, and, the, and the stuff I'm doing with uh, departments around the world, etc. I just couldn't Twitter as well, uh, so I had to actually fold my account, unfortunately. I was not doing it.
0: Well, that's, very, that's understood from, from a fellow. Uh, well, I, I should say, I, I frequently have to confess that I only use Twitter for my own announcement purposes. Mark, thank you so much. Uh, there was a lot of clapping you couldn't see, but you did a great job. <laughs> hope, hope the telephone call didn't cost you too much. Greatly well, appreciative there. of it, and we will look no. forward to future conversations.
1: Thanks, Steve. Okay, Thanks. all best of you. with mate. Bye. Thank
0: you. Bye.